0: Welcome to this week's episode of Compound Your Knowledge, where we review a few research pieces from our blog. This week, we're going to cover a research paper on uh, the small cap value and how that's done compared to the market over the last few years, Um, and then we'll also take a look at a paper I wrote that was on commission-free trading of ETFs, as well as the ETF rule, and Jack and I will just speculate on on what we think some of those changes will bring to the uh, ETF industry and asset management industry uh, at large. So we'll start with the small cap value paper. It was written by Larry Swedro, and he was actually summarizing some research from Verdad Capital. Um, The paper starts out, Jack, he says from 2017, (laughs) because I think these are pretty good numbers to set the stage. So from 2017 through 2019, the Russell 1000 growth index, which is the 1,000 largest companies by market cap, right? So the Russell 1000 growth index returned 20.5% per annum, outperforming the Russell 1000 value index, so the 1,000 largest value stocks, which returned 9.7%. So the difference was 10.8 percentage points a year. And the Russell 2000 growth index, which is the next, uh, 2000 largest, or you could say, you know, basically small cap stocks, the Russell 2000 growth index returned 12.5% per year outperforming the Russell 2000 value index, small cap value, uh, by four point, uh, uh which returned 4.8% per year. Uh, so, so it out performed by 7.7 percentage points per year. Okay, so that was a bit of a mouth throw. But, point is, 1,000 uh, large-cap stocks, market-cap weighted, outperformed 1,000 value stocks. 2,000 small-cap stocks, market-cap weighted, outperformed small-cap value
1: stocks. What do you think? Pain, suffering? Yeah, I mean, it's just... Uh you know, we had our video last week, kind of not, not surprising, given that we knew the performance from 2019 and from 2018, that if you do it over a three-year stretch, value underperformed growth over that time period. What Larry highlights there, which is somewhat different from the analysis I did, is that its value was outperformed by growth not only in the large cap space, mid-large caps, which is kind of what we looked at last week, but also within the small cap space.
0: Yeah. And and then he looked at the international side. Similar story, not as wide.
1: Not as wide. That's correct.
0: So that's that's kind of why it's been less painful to be in a value investor if you're investing internationally, just because the spread hasn't been as wide. You know, and I think it it is kind of crazy, right? Like going back to those numbers, the Russell 1000 value index gave you 10% a year. Yeah. That's still... You know, if I could give you a guaranteed 10% a year for the next 100 years, you'd be like, oh, that's a great return. I Like, sign me up, right? Um, it's just that the growth stocks have done so well over the last two years that it, it, makes, it, it makes it feel like you're doing terrible when you're, when you're doing okay in value, uh, you know, in an absolute sense. Um, so, yeah, so and the spread between MSCI EFA growth index, uh, that gave us 13.3% per year. Um, whereas the MSCI small value index, uh, uh, let's see, it, it beat that by 3.5 percentage points per year. Um, and in, in the emerging market side of things, the emerging markets, uh, got outperformed by 3.4 percentage points per year. So on both developed and emerging only about 3% a year. So it's just, it's been easier to be a value investor internationally because the spread hasn't been as wide. Um let's just hit on this sentence because I think this was, you know, a pretty good thing. So uh, during the last 30 years, during the largest most uh, expensive stocks returned 9.5% per year, underperforming, the 19.4% return of the cheapest small stocks by 9.9 percentage points per year. So if we went back and looked at the previous 30 years, it actually was
1: the opposite. Like there was a huge spread on, on small value over. over Yeah. I mean, historically looking at, you know, using like Ken French's data, you can look, you would find that small value did well. Um, but it does not work all the time, which we've highlighted. And this is clearly a time in which it underperformed, right? Another time of, of underperformance was near the end of the tech bubble mm. where large growth, once again, trounced small value, large value, any type of value. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and they, the, that's
0: where they go into next. There were only two periods worse then the first 10 months of 2019 for us small cap value on a relative basis. Um, key relative, like I said, but uh, that was right before the great depression in 1929. And that was at the height of the tech bubble in 1999.
1: Yeah. I mean, so uh, hopefully neither of those uh, market events occur. Unfortunately, right? We don't want great depressions or uh, stock market bubble popping obviously most investors wouldn't want that, but that actually is when it occurred the past two times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, the great depression was obviously bad, right? The market went down and kind of everything went down. The 1999 tech bubble, you know, I say it just depends what kind of crisis it is because the 1999 tech bubble, I call that like a fundamentals bubble, right? Where if you own a value strategy, you actually did pretty well following the the, the, uh, tech bubble, you know, you didn't go down and nearly as much. And you, you know, you did great from 2000 to 2008. Um, so it depends as, as opposed to what was 2008, 2008 was a liquidity bubble, right? Like just everything got wrecked, everything went down. Um, so it's always, it's, it's like, what, what's driving the, the drawdown, uh, which you can't know really ahead of time. So that, that's the tough thing. Um, Yeah, and then so then, Jack, they had some data on. I mean, I, you know, pretty intuitive or at least what you would hope to see, but they had some data on just how we did uh, in a a small cap value after those, uh, you know, bad returning periods on a one year and three year go forward basis. And what, what did that show?
1: Yeah, I mean, essentially it was looking at, you know, worse relative time. And then what was the future return? And obviously, historically, if you know x ante that small cap value did better than other portfolios, if it had a bad time period, it must have had a really good time period. And what they highlight in this chart is that, you know, in the next one and three year, uh, both like absolute and relative returns were generally pretty good. Not all the time, uh, like on a relative basis, but on absolute, you know, in general is pretty good. The exception there being obviously the Great Depression. Right.
0: Um, Yeah. And then they talk about the spreads between value and growth. Like this is an important thing to understand. Spreads are going up and they had some, you know, very extreme data in their research as to how much the spreads are going up. Right. But we we care about how the spreads are going up between value and growth. Right. How much uh, cheaper is, are the, You know, cheapest value stocks than the growth stocks, and what do do you know what they kind of showed there,
1: Jack? Yeah, I mean, essentially, what they showed is the spread, you know, between like value and growth, right? And uh, I think in that it was basically uh, what was it cash uh, sales to, um, I think it was cash flow, cash flow to price, right? Yeah. Yep. And so what this shows is obviously in general. There, there's a reason that stocks are called gross stocks for a reason, right? Yeah. They have higher growth rates of earnings, cash flows, etc. Yep. And in general, the market rewards them with a higher multiple of their earnings, cash flow, etc. Yep. Right? But what you can look at is like a relative spread basis. Um, and on this metric, what you see is the past couple of years, while value has underperformed growth, um, at the same time the spread between the multiple on value and the multiple on growth has expanded yep. right and now when you're obviously looking at like future returns right to the extent that spread you know goes down that would be a i would say boost for value and negative for growth right right but
0: but and that, that spread's really important and they then Larry gets into this market timing is impossible who knows, right? Cliff Asness, uh at AQR wrote the uh, paper. You know, hey, maybe it's time to sin a little in value uh, a few months ago, and then what happens? Value totally got its face ripped off, and you know. And then Cliff came out and said, "Hey, this is why it's so hard to market time." But but the point is, um, if you were going to market time, and what Larry gets into here, you're you're better off investing in something after it's performed terribly for years um if you were going to try to do market timing as opposed to investing in or or selling out of something that's done terrible for a few years and trying to find something else right i mean
1: something along those lines uh yeah i mean one thing is you know obviously like momentum comes into play because we already know Mm. ex handy buying the worst performing stuff is generally not good right Mm -hmm. but when you're trying to predict future returns, right, one of the, and what Larry highlights, trying to, you know, predict returns, one thing you can look at is, like, the multiple of earnings that you are paying for, right? Right? Um, and so then, obviously, you know, all else equal, if we assume the same growth rates as for value and growth, but that's generally not the case. But if we did, if you pay for a lower <clears throat> multiple of the earnings upfront, you should expect a higher return.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, so that 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 spread's an important thing to understand. Uh spreads are widening. We have a tool on our site that allows you to actually look up what the spreads are across a whole bunch of metrics. You can look at cash flow multiples, enterprise multiples, earnings to price, on and on, sales to price. Um, you know, and any one of them that you look at, the spreads are widening. Some like the cash flow multiple here shows it's the only other time we've been this wide in the spread between what value and gross stocks are is 1999. So, um, uh, other ones show it's less wide, but definitely show it's wider. Uh, so do do with that information, I guess what you want, like we said, market timing's tough, but, but we'd rather see widening spreads than not if we're, if we're actually lagging the market. Um, anything else to add Jack?
1: Yeah, just the, uh, I think that is, for, you know, value investors out there that still like the strategy, one of the thing on the spreads that you can at least take, I would say, uh, solace in, is that the fact that, you know, if value underperformed and the spreads didn't widen, I think that would be, you know, even more painful, right? right? Um, so that's one thing to uh, <clears throat> take a look at. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the next paper we got is
0: on just a paper I wrote, just kind of summarizing what the, uh, changes from commission free trading are, um, as well as something called the ETF rule. The reason I wrote this paper was cause internally, I think at alpha architect, I mean, we knew commission free trading was a thing out there. We didn't participate in any of those programs, but man, were we surprised how much of an impact commission-free trading could have in terms of um, changing investor behavior. Um, So I just wanted to summarize some of my thoughts up on that. Jack, there's like people, you know, one thing people are saying, hey, commission-free trading is bad um, because now people are gonna trade more now that they don't have to pay any commission charges do you have any thoughts around just commission-free trading in general? What what changes we've seen at Alpha Architect
1: are good or bad? Or, uh, I mean, what I'd say is that's generally great for investors, yeah. right? The fact that trading is now commission-free. As far as investor behavior, right, commission-free, uh, I don't think is probably going to affect your... It just depends on what type of an investor they are, right? Yeah. If you're someone that's going to be trading if you were already trading every day, you're reading the news, making trades, you're probably going to trade more, yeah. right? If you're someone that's just buy and hold, you're like, Oh, well, this is nice. Maybe now, you know, I don't have to pay commissions on my, you know, annual rebound. So I think the, right. the 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 move by a lot of brokerage houses towards commission free, uh, will have effects on the behavior of investors kind of exactly what you would expect. Right. People that want to trade are going to trade more. People that don't trade a lot, they're not going to trade a lot anymore.
0: Right. And, and you know, you'll see trading numbers go up. And I'll give you an easy example why. Well, I have friends who, OK, they, they, they set aside $500 every month to invest in whatever model they have built for themselves. Right. They just manage their own money. Um, But they would wait they would wait, you know for three months to build up So they had fifteen hundred dollars of cash to make a trade when trades were ten dollars, right? because they didn't want to trade because there's five hundred dollars and now they're paying ten dollars on five hundred dollars as opposed to paying You know ten dollars on fifteen hundred dollars. It just makes their cost overall lower, right? So they would wait people like that now you can just anytime you get additional cash, you have no qualms. You're like, all right, I'm buying more. I'm buying more, right? So even even well-behaved investors will trade more. But this, if you believe that investing is a good thing, you know, on a systematic, regular basis, um, and not worrying about what the price is today versus yesterday, um, that 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 that's good increased trading. Yeah. Um, um, and and I talked about that the fee war is over in this paper i don't mean that fees aren't going to go lower what i mean is the the players are set for the fee war and they're just murdering each other uh you know state street just cut from uh you know they they took their new s p 500 from from like i don't know what it was like four bips down to two bips or three bips right and Eric Balkunas had a, had a great point on that. As soon as they did that, they got 10 billion in flows into their <coughs> new S and P 500. Like people are calling it SPY mini. Um, so there's definitely like, if you get into this fee war, there will be um, uh, benefits to be had, but one, the players are kind of set Two, from an investor perspective, which is really what matters going from four bips to three bips, isn't
1: going to have a material effect on your long term. Yeah, no, in, in general, that's true. It's good that you can get the market access for two buffs now.
0: Yeah. Um, so so that, yeah. So that's what I was going through there. One thing I did say in this paper, I wrote this back in November, um, I said what it means. So the ETF battle is essentially over, the fee war is over, right? The players are set both in the ETF industry and uh, in, this, in this low cost battle what it means is the behemoths in the mutual fund industry. I'm reading a quote who don't have an ETF strategy will disappear through mergers and acquisitions, similar to how we saw Oppenheimer disappear from getting acquired by Invesco. I wrote that back in, I think I wrote this in November, right? And since then, what have we seen patting myself on the back a little bit, but Franklin Templeton bought Leg Mason, right? So you're going to see more of that because that's kind of the last, move um and and the interesting thing you know is like oh wow these two firms combined now manage 1.5 trillion dollars in aum but somebody had a stat on twitter if you went back five years ago and combined franklin uh templeton and leg mason those two firms would have had a combined 5 trillion instead of 1.5 trillion so these firms have all shrank so much due to missing out um, on on this new world of asset management um uh commission okay so commission free trading big deal i still think it's underrated how big of a deal it is to this point um you're gonna see more mergers jack let's just move to the other topic though um the etf rule yep what like just high level without going too much into it like what, it, what is the ETF role or, or what, you know, from from an investor perspective, what do we, what do we care about there?
1: Well, so for most investors, yeah. the nuanced detail is, uh, I would say, it's not going to have too much of an effect on it. right. Right. Um, now, what exactly is it, right? Yeah. So one of the weird artifacts is when firms tried to get so-called exemptive relief to list ETFs, they had to go out and get <clears throat> an exemption from the SEC. And interestingly enough, over the years, uh, people were playing by different rules, Yeah. right? So firm X had a different set of rules in firm Y than firm Z, which just seems kind of weird, right? You would say, you know, if someone's an ETF issuer, you would just kind of assume, I think most investors actually probably did assume, mm-hmm that an ETF was an ETF and the rules were the same. But that wasn't the case. Right. And so what this rule does is for, I would say, the majority of ETFs, it won't affect all because some like levered products are going to have different rules. right? But for most ETFs, now the fund companies are all going to be able to play by the same set of rules. right? right? So that's one part of the rule. Yep. Um, and then to, to play by the same set of rules, you have to have certain things you have to do. Like, and a lot of th- a lot of firms already do this, like bid ass spread on your website, daily disclosure of holdings. So, things that a lot of firms are already doing. So now they can fall underneath this rule. Yeah,
0: yeah. E- ETF rules great. It's pushing more transparency in the ETF industry. The ETF industry has always been big on transparency, though. So this is just pushing towards more of that. To Jack's point, it evens the playing field of the competition, which is what caused me to put these two uh, topics together, the ETF rule and commission-free trading. The reason they're both so big is because from an ETF issuer perspective, they even the playing field for issuers to compete. You used to have to pay a few hundred thousand dollars if you wanted your commission-free ETF uh, on some of the uh, brokerage platforms um, now it's free for everybody, right? So that obviously benefited the big guys who had major amounts of cash to spend. They could pay for their, uh, ETF to be commission free and then have an advantage over the smaller ETF issuers. Um, it's no different than Coca-Cola paying to have, uh, their soda placed on the, the middle shelf in the grocery store, right? They, they pay to get that, that middle shelf. And then you got the, the, you know the uh the no-name brand stuff the store brand stuff on the bottom shelf right coca-cola pays for that shelf but now everybody's on the same shelf for commission-free trading etf rule uh, lowers the playing field what you're gonna see with the etf rule and i think there's a little bit of confusion in the media around this is you're gonna see more active etfs launch b- because this rule even the playing field for active uh, uh, ETFs across all ETF issuers, just for some we don't need to go into it, but just structural reasons. Um, so so you're going to see more launch. It's not that it's not that people are like, oh, wow, I think like finally people are like, wow, I think active strategies can work in ETFs. It's more just like, wow, we couldn't do active ETF strategies for tax efficiency reasons in ETFs. Now we can. You, you think that's true, Jack? Or? Agree with uh, me or disagree? Yeah, yeah,
1: so I mean, essentially, it, it allows for, um, it, it probably will induce more people to possibly go like active, right, as opposed to being index based, yeah. um, right. But but even active could be like a systematic type approach, right? Right, like AQR DFA, technically, as far as I know, all of their funds are active, right? But most people don't consider them to be. Active stock pickers, right? They're systematic, rules-based strategies that fall under the active definition. Right. And within the ETF industry, you'll probably see some of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That we we could go down that rabbit hole. That is what is active, what is passive. Um, I think when most people think of active, they picture the stock picker. That's you know that's a good term. Um, from, from this rule change, when we're talking active versus passive, it's do you follow
1: an index? Do you follow an index? That's the classification. Yeah. If you follow an index. You're index based. If you don't, you're active.
0: And, and an example of that, so you can be rules based and not follow an index, right? So say, uh, with it, with an index, it'll tell you, Hey, okay, you need to rebalance your, portfolio today. You need to sell Microsoft and buy Amazon because that's what your system says, right? And if you're following an index, it'll say, uh, okay, you got to sell it all today. If you call yourself active, well, your system may, you know, no human involved, but the, the system can say, hey, I want to, uh, yeah, I got I to, what did I say? Sell Microsoft and buy Amazon, right? But maybe you're like, you know what? I don't want to, sell uh, Microsoft today. I'm going to trade this over two days because it's a little, you know, markets down, whatever. Um, So I'm going to, I'm going to work this order over two days, right? So you're still totally following a system. There's no, um, you know, nobody's just waking up, picking stocks, but, uh, but you just have a little bit more flexibility on trading. So, so that's, uh, you know, kind of what DFA and AQR, I believe would, would do. And then uh, what, you know, what what you're going to see that that'll be the reason you'll see more ETF issuers launch active ETFs um, just to have a little more flexibility on on their operations, even if they're still doing systematic uh, type things. Um, All right. Small value has been horrific. Maybe it'll outperform in the future. Maybe it won't. Um, But spreads between value and growth are just about the widest they've ever been. Commission-free, big deal, still underrated. My opinion, you'll still see these big mutual fund companies merging in some way, shape, or form and essentially disappearing. Uh, ETF rule, more active ETFs coming out because of that. Uh, Jack, anything else to add?
1: No, that's it.
0: Okay, that's what we've got for Compound Your Knowledge this week. We'll see you guys again soon. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated
2: and do not necessarily reflect the views of Alpha Architect itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Alpha Architect does not resume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of Alpha Architect as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, Alpha Architect LLC. All rights reserved.